0: Welcome to Spectrum Sundays. I am Megan Sinisi, a Master of Health Science candidate studying to practice as a pediatric speech-language pathologist. I am also Miss Central Pennsylvania and the founder of a nonprofit organization for autism titled From a New Perspective.
1: And I am Francesca D'Alessandro, a current master's student at University of Buffalo studying speech-language pathology. Additionally, I am your Miss Thousand Islands, of New York State serving my community through AAA appreciation and awareness for autism. Everyone deserves to feel accepted and included in every space they walk
0: in. Our series aims to inspire you to advocate for yourself and on behalf of your loved ones. And we are so grateful that you're here with us today.
1: This week, we are so excited to welcome back Michelle Damp, who is a speech language pathologist at MU Thompson Center for Autism and Neurodevelopmental Disorders. She participates in interdisciplinary evaluations and provides intervention for uh, for patients with ASD and various speech and language disorders. Michelle also provides graduate student instruction for students in the University of Missouri speech language and hearing sciences program. She is a hub team member for the Echo Autism Early Intervention Clinic and evaluates patients monthly through the Down Syndrome Clinic at the Thompson Center. Michelle also leads social language groups at the Thompson Center, which helps our patients achieve the skills needed to be independent and employable. So for anyone who has missed your first session, which was episode 45, could you share um, again about your background and inspiration behind speech and language therapy for children with autism?
2: Yeah, so I became interested in speech-language pathology freshman year of college. Um, in our last episode, I did talk about the fact that I talked a lot in grade school and got in trouble for talking all the time. My um, boys loved reading and words, so I knew I would um, get into a career with some type of communication. I thought it was going to be marine biology and communication with dolphins, Um, but after I found uh, a career with speech-language pathologists, I loved it, and that's what I went into, Um, and then the autism piece came a little bit later, um, and just, I I don't know, I just ran with it and really enjoyed watching um, the children that I work with who have autism just grow and develop and become independent.
0: Yes, I... Love hearing all the different ways that SLPs have arrived at their decision to pursue this career because it's oftentimes very different. I mean, some people were microbiology or some people were in business or accounting. Um, So it's really neat to see what kind of background our profession has to offer. And on our last episode, you spoke a lot about the characteristics of autism the procedures behind the evaluation process and what we're looking for there, but today we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into your role as a clinician, as a supervisor, and as an advocate for your patients. So what are some of the most valuable lessons that you've learned through working with individuals on the spectrum? I would say number one,
2: flexibility. Your session is never going to go the way that you planned it. It's still important to plan those sessions and get it as you know organized as you can, but it's not going to go that way and allow it to not go that way because sometimes in those moments that you didn't plan, you're able to provide the most intervention for your client. Um, also allow your client to teach you um, either by after you've taught them the certain skill then allow them to try to teach it back to you or allow them to teach you how to play Minecraft or how to do something that they enjoy so that they can have some buy-in to what you're trying to teach them as well. And then I would say the third thing is you've got to make it fun. If you're bored in your session and you're yawning, your client is not having fun and they're probably not learning. When you think about going to school, the day that you remember the most when you were in grade school or middle school, it was the day when you were doing hands-on learning and experiments and your teacher was excited about what you were learning. Same thing in a speech and language therapy session. You have to bring that excitement and not fake excitement. You have to have fun and um, you do have to have that planned session to make sure you're meeting your goals, but you're going to be able to meet them a lot faster and a lot more efficiently if um your client is engaged and has some buy-in.
1: Yeah and that's all part of a client center approach that I think we all strive for and we'll definitely get back to that point later because I think that is such an important topic on its own. But I really wanted to cover um, some of the greatest needs and challenges that you see families face in the community when um, they're either first being diagnosed with autism or just supporting their uh, children with uh, autism throughout their lifetime and how do you work as an SLP to meet those needs?
2: Yeah, families need a lot of support. They need the support from their SLP to tell them, you are doing a good job. You are coming to all of these therapy sessions. You've put parts of your life on hold to make sure that this child is meeting their communication goals. You're generalizing what I'm teaching. You're following through with home exercise programs. Um, You know, just really giving parents a lot of credit. Um, There they have a lot on their plate because raising children is hard. I have four of them. It is difficult. There's nothing easy about it. It's rewarding. Yes, but it's hard. And then you add a child who has a disability who needs extra, more doctor's appointments, more therapy appointments, maybe some counseling appointments, and it's just a lot of stress. So families need to know you have to give them that support and those those accolades that they are doing a good job. Um, Even if you know, you feel like, well, I send homework every week and they never do it. That family is bringing that child to therapy and you don't know what's going on in their conversations. They may be, you know, engaging and implementing some little things that you've showed them that's not on that piece of paper. So be very cautious that you're very positive with your families. Also do what you can to encourage them to get connected with their regional centers. Um, In Missouri, we have different regional centers for the families and we get them hooked up when they get it when they get a diagnosis um, that regional center can provide that family some resources so that they can get some respite care they need time mom and dad need time to have their date nights and to go to the grocery store without a child who's screaming or you know having significant behaviors on the other hand the family also needs support that they can and should teach their child life skills in the real world environment. They need confidence that it's okay to take my child to the grocery store and teach him how to go through a list of three items and put them in the cart and go to the cashier and pay the cashier and take the groceries to the car and put them away at home. They need that confidence and that reassurance that they can and should do those things with their child. Um, And again, that goes back to that that independence and employability, you've got to teach those life skills. Some families don't want to disrupt anyone else in society, or anyone else whenever they go out so they don't take their child to restaurants, they don't take their child to the grocery store. Right now with COVID, we have a lot more challenges to consider. But prior to that, it was really encouraging parents, as appropriate as they can handle it to take their child out and teach those life skills. Um, So I think respite care and and giving them the positives, the accolades, instilling confidence in them, I think that's the most important thing for families.
0: Absolutely. And I feel like those words of affirmation really do go a long way, especially if, you know, day to day, it feels like you're not being able to accomplish a whole lot. Hearing that from a therapist or someone that's providing care and that acknowledgement that they're, they're doing good for their child, I bet that that just that means the world to them. And as you were talking, you mentioned a few different things that are requirements by law to accommodate for children. So if we think about in the schools, there's IEPs that are required for them to to receive the services that they need. Um, Sometimes insurance covers some of those therapies as well. Do you know of any or can you think of any legislative change or accommodations that you think aren't being met right now that need to be strengthened or fixed to help support the disability and autism community? You know, I feel like
2: our society is doing a much better job at this point of just acceptance of neurodiversity. I feel like we're becoming and hearing more about awareness and acceptance, and I'm so happy about that. Um, I would say though, and this isn't really a legislative change, but a change that I would absolutely love to see is, yes, I will continue to do my social skills groups for my boys and my girls who have autism. But I feel like we also need social skills groups for the bullies and the the children in the class that neurotypical children, I guess, um, they just. Every child needs to learn how to engage socially with people who are not exactly cookie cutter like you. Um, Those social skills on all levels I feel like are so important and just providing social skills to the children with autism or the children with social communication deficits. I think it's helpful but I, I think until we're providing those similar um that similar instruction to more of the children in the general education population um, we're not going to see a, as much of a change as i would like until it's everywhere and all the kids are learning it
0: exactly it's like a two-way street you can't expect one to change without the other one giving way or thinking about those things as well
1: yeah and not just children but adults within the community i couldn't help but think when you talked about going to the grocery store an experience I personally had when I was working with a young woman who has autism and she loves to just get into people's faces as they pass by through each aisle. And (laughs) she would just say, hello, how are you? And um, it's a matter of like me as her DSP, direct support professional to to tell the community um, and say, hey, you know, sorry, we're working on this. um, And some people were really responsive to that and some people weren't. And I think through repeated exposure and through education, especially through that firsthand experience, will eventually help shape people's minds and perspectives to be more open-minded. And um, as we're talking about misconceptions and stereotypes of autism from our previous episode, too, how do you think and hope um, autism awareness can continue and how we can continue to advocate? I I know you talked about talking to peers and school-aged children, which is what Megan and I both do when we talk about how autism isn't necessarily actually at all correlated to intelligence. So it's not fair to say that someone with autism is dumb or stupid. It's totally incorrect. But what are some other misconceptions that should be addressed as well?
2: You know, I feel like just broadly addressing this question is probably the best way for me to do it. And I would go back to Temple Grandin, who has, she was probably the first person to teach me a lot about autism by reading her books and her experience with autism. And then I read her mom's book and her mom's experience with raising her. um, And then watching her HBO movie about her life. It's, we have to look at, at autism as yes, different, but not less. They're not, no one with autism is less than, no one with ADHD is less than. It's different, but it's not less. And I love that quote. Um, I use it a lot. I feel like raising awareness, doing things like what you guys are doing with Spectrum Sundays. I mean, getting people to talk about autism, what it is, what it isn't, um, just, You know, when we have parents come in sometimes and we have to diagnose their child with autism, they don't, we've had parents who are like, no, they don't. Their cousin has autism and their cousin pretty much sits in a corner and flaps his hands or spins, you know, autism looks so different. It is such truly a spectrum disorder. You can have children who, who, you know, talk all the time and won't stop talking. And then you have children who are nonverbal and they both have autism. Just like you said about cognitive, you can have children who have a lower cognitive and a higher cognitive and they can both have autism. So just raising that awareness that autism looks different. You know, that other saying, if you've seen one person with autism, you've seen one person with autism because every person who has it, it's so different. But just recognizing that it's not less than
0: anyone else. Right. And I think that that may be why there are so many reservations with the label of autism, because it's almost like now at this point, whenever we slap autism on a child's paperwork, then it's it's like that's all that's being seen for that child. And no, of course not. They're, they have so many different strengths that they can contribute. And that just the idea that they have this label shouldn't hold them back from whatever it is that they're going to accomplish and that they will accomplish if, if they're treated fairly and appropriately, just like every other one of their peers. So thank you for explaining that further, but I actually wanted to change gears a little bit and talk about your work as a clinical supervisor. So I was very fortunate and lucky to have you as one of my very first graduate clinical supervisors at the Thompson Center. And I learned so much from you, But I know that that's also a very big responsibility and a valuable opportunity to shape the future of our profession. So what do you find is especially important to teach young clinicians as they train to provide appropriate services for individuals with ASD?
2: That's a big question, Megan. I need a semester to answer it. I feel (laughs) like there is so much to teach um, our young clinicians that are getting ready go out into the world as SLPs. Um, Definitely want all of our SLPs to understand that receptive and expressive language, also to understand that underneath that receptive and expressive language, we have our syntax and our semantics and our pragmatics. Don't ignore the pragmatics. When we give tests like the self um, or the owls, we look at the receptive and expressive language, primarily in the syntax and semantics piece of language. And I feel like sometimes that pragmatic piece gets left off or just kind of informally looked at where that piece, especially for a child with autism can make or break them in an IEP. Um, If you didn't assess pragmatics and they did fine on the self, they don't get services and you're 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 saying they don't have a language disorder true not a language disorder in the sense of a syntax or semantics or morphology but they do have a language disorder with that pragmatic piece or those social communication deficits so I really encourage all SLPs to just don't ignore that pragmatic piece. Also, that super linguistic piece. So that test, like the test of problem solving, or there's that super linguistic piece in the castle too. Um, I will say, I like the castle second edition, a whole lot more than the castle first edition. Um, and in that, you know, just being able to look at the inferencing, the problem solving, the negation, the sequencing, in addition to the the basics in the self. So. Don't ignore the super linguistics, don't ignore the pragmatics, be sure that whenever you're evaluating that language area, you are comprehensively evaluating that language area. Um, Know the ins and outs of the autism criteria, the DSM criteria, if you're working in an outpatient clinic, the educational criteria, if you're working in a school district. Um, Sometimes autism gets missed in the school, and so it can take the expertise of the SLP who knows about autism to tell the team, hey, wait a minute, I'm seeing this and I'm seeing this, and I'm yeah, I got this from the teacher. I think we need to really take a firm, you know, good, hard look at, at autism.
1: Yeah, and that's why we're so appreciative for clinicians like you to pass on that valuable knowledge. And hopefully that won't be as large of an issue for years to come um, since we're learning more about that. And to go back to the topic earlier of Client-centered practice, Um, we know that evidence-based practice is essential for providing treatment, but we also have to keep in mind um, what our client is really interested in. And we've had other SLPs talk about uh, how they find some resources, like looking at Spotify's top 100 hits list to find music that would engage their children. Um, what do you use uh, resources that you use for some of your sessions to keep things both evidence-based but also child-centered or client-centered?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things I do during my language evaluations with the patients that come in, I look at strengths and weaknesses, and I also look at interests so what is your child interested in if it's legos we're going to use that in our session if it's minecraft we're going to use that in our session going back to what i said previously your sessions have to be organized but they also have to be fun and engaging and the best way to do it you know is just to work with those interests if they're interested in dinosaurs you can You can most likely not wear out that interest if it's a a restricted interest. So, Use the dinosaur books, use the dinosaur cards, use the dinosaur toys, um, the dinosaur puzzle. You use all of it. Make dinosaurs with Play-Doh. I would say that is my main thing. Like I need to know what they like and what they like to talk about. I need to know about Fortnite and Twitch. And I need to know about Among Us and Minecraft and the Sonic Hedgehog characters so I can have those conversations with um, my clients. If I don't know about that, Ooh, I'm not going to be able to go very far in my communication with them.
0: Yeah, part of me thinks that, thinks that that's why, that's what makes us so special as clinicians and the tendency, the people that we end up seeing come into this profession, because, you know, a lot of people might not be able to tolerate the same thing over and over and over again and watching the same clips, but it's interesting how we can use that one Uh, that one tool, that one thing that they're interested in and adapt it to, and they don't even know it, that we're, we're targeting all different language concepts and getting them to buy into that therapy. So that's what I think it's fun to try to figure out how to use things in very creative ways. (laughs) It's
2: also why whenever I was doing therapy in the schools, I think a lot of the teachers that would see my therapy, they're like, well, she does this
0: play with toys and games all day. (laughs) And that's what you want them to think. <laughs> they they see that the kids are having fun. So that's good. Um, so in your bio, bio that you sent us, your introduction, you mentioned that you're part of the ECHO Autism Early Intervention Clinics. Can you speak about the importance of early intervention and then tell us about the services that are provided for ECHO? Yeah, so early intervention is super important. And just like what I
2: had on before, in order for us to be able to Um, reach those big goals of confidence and independence and employability, um, higher education, whatever it is that we want to hit on after high school, the earlier the child is identified with autism or diagnosed with autism, the more time we have to work towards those big goals. Um, So early intervention is, you know, and that's also whenever we have um, children that are just they're learning language like crazy at those early childhood ages. So that is the time to really hit um, and, and try to get them caught up faster. The earlier that they're diagnosed, um, you definitely have a better chance of that. So with ECHO Autism Early Intervention, it is an amazing project. Um, Dr. Kristen Soule um, is in charge of our ECHO Autisms. ECHO actually started in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the University of New Mexico. And it was more of a medical, um, and the main premise of ECHO is um, moving knowledge, not people. So if you think about, and um, my main focus with the ECHO that I'm working on is, is Missouri. So we definitely have bigger cities in Missouri, St. Louis, Kansas City, Columbia, Springfield, but we also have a lot of rural areas well children who are diagnosed with autism at the Thompson center who live two and a half hours away in a rural area we're going to recommend that they get you know applied behavioral analysis we're going to recommend that they get individualized speech and language therapy sessions and occupational therapy they don't they don't have the resources to get those type of therapies so what echo does is we have a hub team on our hub team it's Myself, speech language pathologist, we have an occupational therapist. We have a parent advocate, and our, it's awesome that our parent advocate has a child with autism, but he's also a pediatrician. So we definitely pick his brain in those areas as well. Um, we have a BCBA, and we have an early childhood education teacher. So we are the expert hub team, as far as you know our early early intervention with autism. Then we have our participants. So our participants are from all over Missouri. We actually have some that are from out of state too, but primarily in Missouri and we've targeted those rural areas. So we have SLPs and OTs, primarily SLPs and OTs who participate in our ECHO. And um, we also have a few other like early childhood teacher and um, uh, BCBA, but that's primarily how it works. So if you think about a wheel, like we're the hub team and the participants are the spokes. So they're, we're disseminating knowledge. In a typical echo, what happens is we have one of our participants, one of our spokes of the wheel who present a case. So they present about a child that they're working with. Um, You know, for example, I'm working with a a two-and-a-half-year-old child, just got a diagnosis of autism, parents are overwhelmed, child is nonverbal, I've tried PECS, it's not working, I don't know what to do, the child is having behaviors, wanting to watch TV the whole session, and they'll give us a lot of information about their case. So what we'll do from that point is the participants will ask clarifying questions, we will ask clarifying questions to really get good information about it. Then we provide recommendations. So the we will the hub team will provide some recommendations, definitely really well-researched, well-evidence-based recommendations. And then our participants may provide some recommendations as well. This is all done virtually on a Zoom call. It lasts about an hour and a half. It provides um, a really nice sense of collegiality and community. So now whenever I have a child come to the Thompson Center and get diagnosed with autism, I have, um, you know, some colleagues in Ozark, Missouri, who I can call up and say, hey, do you have any openings on your, you know, on your wait list or any openings for OT or SLP? So we really make some connections and network with each other, as well as disseminating all of this knowledge that we have to all of these more rural areas. So these children are getting really good quality intervention and quality care. If they can't find ABA, we do what we can to try to help hook them up with the right services in their area. We provided a training, a free PEX training level one for them in the fall. And we're going to provide another PEX training um, through the Pyramid Company this coming fall. Um, So it's really a fabulous, fabulous program. And um, our participants also get free CEUs for joining. So good stuff
1: sounds like a great system you've got going on. And it's really fascinating to hear the inner workings of how some of these teams work with each other and how you would disseminate that knowledge, especially in rural areas where it's really needed um, because it can be hard for SLPs to travel out or they might just not have the resources they need there. Um, but actually still speaking on what you do at the Thompson Center, you lead a variety of social language groups for patients. So what could you explain what some of those different groups are and maybe some of the goals behind them or what uh, those patients benefit from being in the program?
2: Yeah, so if you can't tell, I really love my job. I love all the different aspects of my job. I love that it's different every single day. Um, So I have social language groups. I um, have this semester is kind of crazy because I decided to do both of them in the same semester. So Monday, Wednesday, I have the boys only social language group. And on Tuesday, Thursday, I have the girls only social group. Um, We meet from four to 5 p.m. I have uh, four participants in each of the groups. I have two, three graduate students. Who are helping me out with the groups and I could not do the groups without the help of the graduate students because there's just so much to remember in our groups. Um, So the way that I structure the groups from for about the first 30 to 35 minutes we do a lesson. Our lesson um, contains all very much so evidence-based practices. So we're using visual supports. We're doing role plays. We're doing video modeling. It's very active learning. It's not just sitting there lecturing. Or if it is lecturing, the lecture is short. Um, today, they just they, the students put together this amazing PowerPoint. The boys were engaged the whole time. Um, the children in my social language groups are ages uh, 9 to 13. Um, so after that first 35 minutes of teaching, we, we typically use the social competence intervention um, for adolescents curriculum. And then we do a cooperative activity for the next 20, 25 minutes. Um, so they might pair up with a partner and build with Legos or do a marble tower. We'll do some type of STEM activity. Or we might bake some cookies. Um, We've done a scavenger hunt. We've just done all kinds of things. And it's really as creative as the graduate students want to get with it. That's how creative we are with our um, cooperative activities. During that cooperative activity time, we're doing direct teaching and trying to elicit um, really good conversational skills. So we have um, in our group this time, we have one boy who talks a lot and one who doesn't talk at all. They both have autism, they're both about the same age. Um, So we have to really work to kind of facilitate and say, you know, hey, what question could you ask to try to get, you know, so and so's opinion on on what you should build or what you should put in next? Um, So it's very direct teaching during that cooperative activity time. And then at the very end, we have a snack time which looks a little bit different now with COVID because we are meeting in person. So they get the option to either continue with the cooperative activity and take their snack home. If they want to eat it in, at the group, then they, we just have everybody kind of sitting six feet apart at least so they can take their masks off. Um, and then again, it's a free conversation time, but then we're facilitating and, and providing those prompts and cues as needed. Um, we also provide parent education during that. So we will, we give the parents books that they can have. Um, We give them handouts. Um, We also give them a note after every session so that they know exactly what we learned that day and what our cooperative activity was so that they can carry over some of the skills that we learned. They also get a calendar at the very beginning of the 12-week session that every session tells them what topic we are going to be addressing um, so that you know, they're
0: aware of that even before they come in that day. Right. As if it wasn't important enough to have these different social language groups and peer interactions that are a safe space for them to explore their skills and then learn from each other, especially now during COVID, it's, it's good to hear that there are programs out there. And I can only imagine what clinicians are doing across the country to Meet the need of, of these children who, who really crave that support and, and that kind of so- socialization. I feel like that's a big misconception is that children with autism don't want any relationships, but they have desires, just like every other person, to have a human connection and to have a relationship at some level. So that's really great to hear. Um, but on the topic of socialization, it might be deterring to typically developing peers to interact with some of their peers with autism because of some of the behaviors that are presented and they are sometimes disruptive. And you mentioned in earlier in our talk about some of those self-injurious behaviors too that can be harmful for the individual also. But we talked about how that is all a form of communication and trying to get needs and wants communicated. So could you give some examples of what those behaviors look like and why they could be misinterpreted um, and also some advice of how we can match communication and, and help them meet the need of their that these behaviors are trying to convey: Yeah um-
2: Absolutely. So one thing that we talked about earlier is that if you have a child who is banging their head on the floor, that could indicate a message of, you know, I have a headache. Um, The thing is, behaviors are messages. So when you think about that, which is absolutely 100% true, that's another reason it's very important for us to have a good working relationship with our BCBAs so that we can get ideas, and we can consult with each other as far as the behavior and the language piece. Working together, you're going to get a lot farther with that client than you would just trying to figure it out on your own. Um, So, um, you know, the, the children who are nonverbal with autism, a lot of times they're also very independent and self-sufficient. So if they want a drink, they just go get a drink. They have no reason to ask for it. Or if they want a snack, they have free access to snacks. So they just go get it. Or the toy that they want or the TV show that they want. Um, so it's it's you know, sometimes we have to teach parents that in order to get that communication taught, we also have to change that behavior just a little bit or change that that access a little bit. Um, it's, you know, the the um, antecedent behavior consequence, the ABC, it's very important for SLPs to know, it sounds like ABC is SLPs, um, for <laughs> us to really know, know about behaviors and know that the behavior is a message. So what's happening after that behavior, what's happening before that behavior. So then you can use that information in your sessions to come up with, your positive behavior supports and come up with your appropriate visual supports. Um, It's just, it's, they're just so intertwined. It's hard to know where the SLP's knowledge stops and the ABA, the BCBA's knowledge picks up. Um, So that's why it's just really important even if you don't work in a clinic or work in a school where you have a BCBA um, become really good friends with one so that you can text and ask questions or call um, or you know get hooked up with a clinic where you can go and observe I know um, this semester, um, my graduate student like she took the time to go from her client session straight into his ABA session because her next client had canceled. And she learned a lot, but she was also able to provide the ABA providers with some information to help them. Um, And what we've seen out of this little guy in the past two weeks has just been pretty phenomenal, you know, with the amount of verbal um, language that he's using where he typically uses a speech generating device. So just that collaboration alone can really help children um, to learn how to appropriately communicate their messages so they don't need to use the negative behaviors to get those messages communicated.
1: Yeah, an important point that you said too is building a relationship with, a good relationship with the BCBAs, but also with the client themselves and understanding what's typical what's not typical and building that trust between each other is so important in understanding and i wouldn't say correcting those behaviors but um, understanding why they're happening and helping resolve them so uh, but also you talked about the importance of different modes of communication and we've talked a lot about pecs and for anyone who isn't familiar with that term it's picture exchange communication system which can oftentimes be confused with PCS, which is picture communication system. Um, So I was wondering if you could clarify maybe uh, the differences between the two systems and how it's properly used and how it can help support expressive communication and especially with other types of uh, communication devices like speech generating devices.
2: So definitely with PECs, with the picture exchange communication system, you're really looking to teach the child how to initiate communication and not just do what you tell them to do or um, request something, but to actually take that picture card, move across a distance to take it to somebody to get their attention and to start that communication um with PECS, I would say the most important thing um, is just really solidly completing that phase one and phase two, the phase one when you're working with another person. If you're trying to do um PECS by yourself, that phase one, and the child is not super interested in it, uh you're gonna have a lot of difficulty. So it's very important to have a second adult or a second person there to help prompt that child into what you're wanting them to do. And then as they progress, you're adding more words, you're adding um, not just the labels, but the verbs and the adjectives and you're teaching them how to ask questions through PEX. Once you get to that point where they're bringing you the sentence strip, that's just so exciting on its own. When you get to see the child start to take the pictures off of the, the binder and put it on that sentence strip, they're very intentional with it. They take that sentence strip off of their Velcro and they take it over to you. It's just like, wow, you know, my work here is done, they did it. Um, but that's at a point where you really want to think about where is this child headed? Are they using any verbal language paired with the PEC system, if so, you know, let's try to facilitate more of that verbal language to try to get them to where they don't necessarily need the picture cards anymore, because speech is definitely the most efficient way to communicate. If that's not, then you can, um, some parents like to go the sign language route. Um, I like it too, to help to facilitate the verbal. The only problem that I have with it is that it's limited in who's going to be able to understand once we get into putting two and three signs together. A lot of people know the basic signs for, you know, drink, eat, potty, all of those kind of things. But once we add more like colors and animals and different things, it becomes more difficult for other people to communicate back. And that's another reason why PEX is a great program for starting out because anyone can understand the pictures that they're bringing. Um, so once they start putting those words together, then you have to start thinking about that speech generating device and moving into that. Um, world. It just, it surprises me all the time. Whenever I have kids that are moving into that speech generating device and you set it up and you're just like, wow, you know, that they're just not going to be able to get, this is just too many pictures. And they just come in and you start teaching and they're just, you know, I want to play iPad and they can put all those words together and find them. And you teach them, you know, one or two times, and then they've got it. Um, And you give them those social phrases. Uh, This, the one little guy the same one I was just telling you about that my student went into his ABA session. He has a speech generating device and we're working on social. And so you have to teach them the social. So I don't want to, is a very appropriate social response from a typical eight-year-old, right? So we have to teach him that. We have to give him the words to do that. And now that's really his favorite thing is, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. <laughs> so he, he has to learn that we can't always um, go by that or respect that. And so we have to do our work even if I don't want to, but we have to give him the opportunity and the option to be able to use that um, communication, so.
0: Yeah, it's awesome to hear in depth about these different programs because A lot of AAC and different modes of communication can be whenever that's presented to a family or someone that is having a hard time getting their child to be expressive verbally. It can be discouraging whenever they're presented with this type of system, because I feel like in my experience, when that's first presented, a parent thinks, oh my gosh, does this mean that my child's never going to be able to talk? But it's important to remember that this can be a means to an end and also that we can respect that any kind of communication is still a valid form of communication. Um, so it's it's nice to see the bridge and the gap being filled um, and that PECS can be that means to an end to get children to communicate whatever that's on their mind. Um, I'm curious to go back to the topic of the pandemic because we obviously can't ignore that things are a little bit different right now. Um, Francesca's in New York, I'm in Pennsylvania, you're in Missouri. So it looks different all over the country, but um, we've all experienced a lot of disruption in our normal day-to-day routines. And we know that the kiddos that we work with, this is hard to make transitions. And when they're, it's less predictable, it's, it's really hard to um, get that working schedule and to know what to expect. So how has your intervention maybe changed so that, children are able to predict a little bit more as much as they can and then still be successful day to day as they kind of navigate this unknown?
2: That is a great question. And yes, the pandemic affects us all, but whenever you have a child who does not handle change very well and they have to deal with the pandemic on top of their typical challenges, those the families just really need a lot of support. Um, I will tell you the Thompson Center website offers some free resources for dealing with COVID um, for families. There are some free visual supports for um, the kiddos. Also, Autism Speaks has some free COVID resources. Um, Easter Seals also has some free COVID resources. All of those are geared toward children with autism, but they can be used and um, um, accommodated or changed for children just in general. This is hard for everybody, but especially the children. Um, they're having to do their school from, you know, online, which is difficult. You know, that hands-on learning is, is a big deal and they're having to have their parents do some of the teaching. I didn't want to listen to my mom teach me math. And so, you know, all of this stuff is just really difficult. So providing as much support as we can, um, I had to learn how to do more telehealth services at dealing with the parent coaching aspect. And again, just assuring parents you're doing a good job. It's, you know, trying to take on the teaching and trying to do their own jobs from home, it's a lot. I will say uh, AutismNavigator.com is a very good resource for parents of young children who have autism or who they think might have autism for providing some very specific parent coaching. Um, they have some really good webinars too for professionals on how to coach parents through um, you know, avenues like FaceTime and Zoom, um, so, yeah, I mean, we've really had to just think outside the box. Um, and as therapists, we've had to learn all kinds of new things this year. So, um, I will just be thrilled when everything is 100% completely in person. And I can talk about, you know, teaching your child how to go out and order at a restaurant again, um, do all those fun social things that we've really been limited on this past year.
1: Right, and uh, I'll definitely be checking out some of those resources. I think anything that we've learned from the pandemic, especially in the world of the autism community, is um, something that the uh, individuals with autism have always struggled with is transition and self-regulation, but as we're going through this pandemic together, I think that is something as a whole our nation and our uh, the entire globe is really struggling with is self-regulation. while balancing all these stressors at home, transitioning from in-person therapy to telehealth can be very stressful in itself. So I'll definitely be checking out those resources. Maybe they'll not only help our clients, but maybe myself as well. Um, So as we're wrapping up today, what is an overarching message or takeaway that you'd like our viewers to remember? I know we've talked about a lot of things, but what is something that really hits home for you?
2: So I would, I think that the key things that hit home for me um when when you're thinking about a person who has an who has autism spectrum disorder just being very cognitive and very cognizant that thinking about different not less I think Temple Grandin the way that she said it it's so nice it's simple it's black and white you can you know easily grasp that concept. Also, as we're working with um, people with autism, working toward independence, working toward employ- employability, working toward building their confidence in who they are. Letting them know that autism does not limit you. You still have the same strengths. You still have the same weaknesses. So let's build up everything that we can so that we're having a better transition into adulthood for our people with autism, where they're going into adulthood with the confidence that, you know, I can do it. I can do whatever it is that I wanna do um, and just not being, being limited uh, by that diagnosis or
0: label. Well, thank you so much for sharing that and for being with us. Thank you for taking your time to share your knowledge and obviously your passion for what you do I feel like every place in the U.S. needs a Thompson Center or something like it, because there are just so many resources and great projects and programs that come out of the Thompson Center. And it, it's really great to see that you're the, you're the one spearheading a lot of those, those programs and making that available to families. So thank you so much for sharing everything that you have to offer with us.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. It is a fabulous place to work. I, I feel very fortunate
0: to be there. Absolutely. Well, for anybody watching, if you have felt inspired by Michelle's discussion with us and you want to learn more about the Thompson Center or to find their resources, you can follow them on Instagram at MUTC Autism. They're also on Facebook, the Thompson Center, and their website is thompsoncenter.missouri.edu. So please make sure to check out their resources and if you enjoyed this episode also make sure to check out michelle's original interview with us which was on episode 45 where we covered general facts about autism early identification and the evaluation process thank you everyone and we will see you next sunday thank you for listening to spectrum sundays we are your hosts miss central pennsylvania megan sinisi
1: and miss thousand islands francesca d'alessandro please make sure to subscribe to our series and follow us on social media to stay connected to autism professionals and self-advocates. And just
0: remember, true impact is accomplished through active listening and exploring the world through a variety of perspectives.
1: Join us next week on Spectrum Sundays to help cultivate a community of inclusion, appreciation, and acceptance around autism.